0: Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. What a blessing. Well, I appreciate all the good music, good singing that we've had here this morning. Couldn't help but think about how all those songs just kind of went together this morning. And uh, what a blessing. Thank you all for coming to sing for us. And I hope now God will touch his word this morning. If you got your Bible, have your Bible there. I'm in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 18. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, is page 1100 in the Old Scofield Bible or the third book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. I want to read some verses here in a moment. And I just want to try to encourage you along the way and appreciate the good music, good song, good singing that we've had this morning. And uh, bless my heart. And I want to just encourage you along the way, if I can this morning with the Word of God as well. I do want to invite you to join us again this afternoon at 5:30 on our live stream or all of the radio stations as well. Uh, we, our services are broadcast now, all three services on radio and then on live stream, Facebook. And so we invite you to join us this afternoon again at 5:30 for our service. And again, if you would pray for us, we would appreciate that very, very much. All right, the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter number 18. And find your place there, if you will. I'd like to ask you to look this way, if you will. You know, Jesus was the master communicator uh, who left those of his listeners amazed by the things that he said. Jesus wowed people in our terminology today. He, he, in our terminology, He blew people away with the things and by the things that He said. Over in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 28, the Bible said that when Jesus had finished these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine. They were amazed. They were astonished by the things that He said. You see, Jesus not only had a knack at getting the heads of his listeners, Jesus had a way of, more importantly, getting the hearts of his listeners as well. And one of the ways that Jesus really reached out and grabbed, grabbed a hold of his listeners was by some of the stories that he told. Now, most of the stories that Jesus told in, in the four Gospels, we refer to those stories as, as parables. And the word parable means to cast along beside of. In other words, what would happen would be this. Jesus would lay down an eternal truth in the word of God and then to illustrate that truth so that his listeners could really grasp it and get a hold of it, Jesus would cast alongside of that truth a little story that would bring the truth home, make that truth relevant to those who listen to it. In vivid word pictures, the Lord Jesus brought eternal truths into language that the common, the ordinary people of his day, could understand. In fact, over in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12 and verse 37, the Bible said in that last phrase that the common people heard him gladly. Boy, I I, I need that. You know what I am? I'm a common person, and I'm an ordinary person, and I need people if I'm going to get truth. I've got to have people to get down there on my level. Like old B.R. Lakin said one time, God called us to feed his sheep and not his giraffes. And if you're going to get sheep fed, you're going to have to put it down there where the sheep can get a hold of it. Well, Jesus spoke about things. He spoke about things like farming and fishing. Jesus spoke about things like suppers and weddings. He spoke about things like we saw last week, building a house or choosing a road, things that people could identify with. And every story that Jesus told, there was always what we would call a moral or a bottom line, a moral to the story. I heard about this school teacher one time who who was trying to teach her children the morals of stories. And so as an assignment, she told her children, she said, I want you to go home. I want you to get a story, and tomorrow come back and tell me the story, and then give me the moral of your story. Well, the next morning, they all piled in, and she said, Okay, now, who has a story for me? One little girl raised her hand, and she said, Teacher, my story goes like this. We had 10 eggs, and we placed all 10 eggs in an an incubator, but only seven of those eggs hatched. And the moral of my story is, don't count your chickens before they hatch." Well, another little girl raised her hand, and she said this, Mama gathered all the eggs and put them in a basket, and we were carrying them to the store. And on our way to the store, Daddy hit a hole in the road. The basket fell over, and all of our eggs broke. And the moral of my story is, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Well, she went around the whole room, and finally there was this last little boy... And she said, uh, she said, Johnny, do you have a story for us? He said, well, teacher, my story goes like this. My Uncle Fred was a fighter pilot in World War II. He was flying over an island that was inhabited by the Japanese when they shot his plane down. Well, as his plane was on its way down, my Uncle Fred grabbed a bottle of moonshine from underneath his seat and took a swig of it. He then parachuted out, and when he hit the ground... He killed 10 Japanese soldiers in hand-to-hand combat and and took 15 more prisoners. The teacher said, that's an amazing story, but what's the moral? He said, the moral of the story is don't mess with Uncle Fred when he's been drinking. Every story, thank you all for the courtesy laugh, Uh, every story that Jesus told had a moral to it. I love to watch those old Perry Masons usually at least one time a week I watched Perry Mason on MeTV. He he always had some catchy titles to the episodes that he he had, those old black and white episodes. And so this morning, could I borrow a, a title from the Perry Mason show? And I want to preach on this subject this morning, The Case of the Nagging Woman and the Crooked Judge. The case of the nagged woman, nagging woman, and the crooked judge. Now, let me stop and read you the story about this nagged woman and this crooked judge. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. The Bible said this He spake a parable unto them. Jesus spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Men ought always to pray. Now, that's the eternal truth. Hey, Jesus said, hey, don't give up praying. Don't cave in when it comes to praying. And then to illustrate that, he tells us this story, verse 2, about this nagging woman and this crooked judge. Look at verse 2. There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city. She came unto him, saying, avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me. In other words, she just kept on and on and on. I'm going to avenge her. I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect? which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Now, reading that story, we have the story of a nagging woman. And we also have the story of a crooked judge. Now you say, preacher, thank you for telling us that. But what does all that have to do with us? Well... I really think that the key to understanding this this story that Jesus told in our text this morning is to understand who he was speaking this, this story to. If you look there at verse number 7, the Bible said, And shall not God avenge his own... And then we have the word elect, his own elect. Now, the word elect is used uh, a couple of different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes the word elect is, is used to, to, uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a definition of the nation of Israel. God talked about the nation of Israel being his own elect. Other times in the New Testament, the word elect is referred to, it's used in reference to the church. I think about that great verse in Romans eight thirty three, where the Bible said, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. There, the word elect is used in reference to the church. I'd like to use that this morning in reference to you and I. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saved people are God's elect people. So Jesus tells this story with his people In mind. But he also tells us there in verse number eight that he's talking to his people that are alive on the earth before his coming. Look again at verse eight. Notice this phrase Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. You see, Jesus seems to indicate that he's telling this story for a particular group of people. He is telling this story for people, his people, that are living on the earth and living in the earth in the days prior to his second coming. So I guess I could say this. This story is told with you and me in mind because we are those people that are living on the earth. And we are those people who are living in the days prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk about this story and what in the world it has to do with you and with me. First of all, I want you, if you will, to notice in this story, I want you to see, number one, that this story deals with the problems of people. This story deals with the problems of people. Now, when I say that, I I make that uh that uh that statement on the basis of what had happened to this widow lady that we read about in our text. Notice in verse 3, the Bible said that there was a widow lady in a certain city. She came unto him, this unjust judge, and she said, avenge me of mine adversary. So we know right up front something's happened to this lady. She has an adversary. She has an enemy. She's been, she has suffered a great injustice in her life. I mean, she's been done wrong about something. Uh, she's she's got a problem, something going on in her life. I don't know if maybe we're not left, you know, we're not told exactly what had happened to her. I don't know if her children had risen up against her and were trying to, uh, uh, you know, take take something from her. I, I don't know if maybe someone had broken into her home and stolen something from her, stolen her property. I don't know if maybe somebody had come by her home, knocked on the door, misrepresented themselves, and then had hoodwinked her out of her life savings. You know, the truth of the matter is we don't know what kind of a problem, what kind of an injustice that this woman had suffered. We do know this. She has an adversary. And as we consider all that, she's she's been done wrong. She's having a difficult time in her life. Well, I want to say, and you know this, but as you and I live out these last days, we understand that living for God is not going to come without its problems. It's not going to come without its pressures. It's not going to come without its persecutions. Living for God as a child of God in these last days is not going to be a cakewalk. There are going to be hardships. We are told in our Bible to prepare for persecution. We're told to prepare for trouble. We're told to get ready for difficult days. We understand from the Bible that the devil is really going to ramp up his pressure. He's going to turn the gauge. He's going to make it hotter on God's people as we live out these last days. Now, I know I may be pulling this verse out of context just a little bit, but I think the truth of it is found. Look at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12. The Bible says of Satan in the end of time, he is is going to go about, he is going to ramp up the pressure on God's people because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. We understand in these last days the pressures are coming, the problems are coming, and we understand that the persecution is coming. But we also understand from this text that living in these last days, there are going to be two types of Christians, two types of God's people who are going to live in these last days. Now, if you look at chapter 18 and verse 1, the very first word of this story, this text, is the word and. And. Now, the word and is a conjunction and it connects what is about to be said with what has just been said, previously been said. So if you go back to the end of Luke chapter 17, I think you'll notice in this text that Jesus brings forth two Old Testament what we would call Christians in the Old Testament who lived in very difficult times. If you look at verse number 26, he talks about a man by the name of Noe. Now, we know Noah. We know him as Noah. Boy, we know what a difficult day that he lived in. Then if you'll drop down in this text, notice again, if you will, in verse number, uh, verse number 29, we read about an Old Testament man by the name of Lot. Now, both of these individuals were saved people. We know that. Noah was saved. The Bible said he found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. Watching old Lot's life in the Old Testament, you would think he wasn't saved. But then you go over there to the book of Peter, and Peter says he vexed his righteous soul. So he had a righteous soul. So we know that Lot was saved. But can I tell you this? They lived in very, very difficult days. They lived in days when the pressure was on when the problems were great, when the persecutions came. Oh, Noah lived in those days. Oh, Lot lived in those days. For instance, look at verse 26, Noah. The Bible uses both of these Old Testament personalities, Jesus does, to tell us, to warn us, okay, when you see the conditions of the earth, relate back to the days and the conditions of times in the days of Noah and then the days of Lot. Look out, Jesus said, I'm getting ready to come. Am I right? Look at verse 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. Look at verse 29. But the same, I'm sorry, verse 28, likewise as it was in the days of Lot. So Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament and says, okay, I want to tell you about two Old Testament personalities. Both of them lived in difficult days. Boy, Noah lived in a rotten world, didn't he? The conditions and the times in which Noah lived were horrible. The Bible said that men were thinking only evil continually. Marriage was being dishonored. People were pleasure crazy." They were eating and they were drinking, and great unbelief abounded in the days of Noah. And yet we know one thing about Noah. Noah successfully lived for God in those days. You know what Noah says? Hey, you can make it. In spite of the pressure, in spite of the persecution, in spite of the problems, you can make it. But then we have Lot. Lot, on the other hand, we know he didn't make it. I mean, Lot was a miserable failure. He lost everything. Lot lived in a place by the name of Sodom. So, a society had once again corrupted itself. The city was filled with Sodomites and homosexuals, and they were militant, and they were mean people. Man, they would kill you if you went against them. We know that when Lot, the angels came to Lot, according to Genesis 19, they came near the door. They were to break Lot's door down. They were a militant and a, and a mean people. And yet we know that Lot caved to the pressure of that day. He even sat in the gate. It's like a politician in the city of Sodom. Sodom uh, Lot, says, uh, Lot says it was. it's hard it's hard to be a Christian and do business in Sodom. Lot was saying it's hard to be a Christian in the world of politics. Lot was saying it's hard to be a Christian in the educational system of Sodom. And he caved and he conformed and he surrendered. And guess what? Lot lost Everything. You know, as we live out these last days, there are going to be those like Noah who makes it. There are going to be those who stand against the pressure and the problems and the persecutions. And then, tragically, there are going to be those lots, those lots that give in to everything that's going on in our society. Maybe I need to stop the message this morning and just ask you, what are you going to be? Are you going to be a lot and you're going to cave in? Or are you and I going to be a Noah? Are we going to stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross? Or are we going to be a lot? Are we just going to blend in? Are we going to be transformed? Or are we going to be conformed? You see, Jesus tells us in this story a little bit about the problems of people. The persecutions are coming. The difficulties are coming. The pressure is coming. The problems are going to be great in these last days. So he tells us a little bit about the problems of people. But then we move from that, and now we turn, I guess, to really what we would say is the real meaning of the parable because he tells us about the, not only the problems of people, but he tells us about the principle of prayer. The principle of prayer. Notice again in verse 1, Jesus said this, Men ought always to pray and not pray. To faint. You know, one of the greatest resources that you and I have as the people of God in these last days is the resource of prayer. And Jesus, according to verse number 1, gives us one of two options. That is, we can pray or we can faint. In other words, he said there in verse number 1, he said this, you can either communicate or you're going to disintegrate. You can either pray or you will cave. Now, I think all of us in here understand that there is great evil that surrounds us today. I'm not trying to be gloom and doom, but let's just just make it plain, make it simple. We're living in dangerous days, perilous, perilous times. The temptation to cave into the evil that surrounds us is all around us today. There's a constant pounding on us by the society that we live in today. There's a constant pulling on us by the world that we live in. There's a constant pressing on us by our adversary. And if we aren't careful, if we aren't careful, if we don't pray, we'll cave. If we don't communicate, we'll disintegrate. If we're not careful, we'll collapse morally. We'll give in spiritually Jesus said, we have got to pray in these last days. Now, I want to go back and just remind you, why did Noah make it and why did Lot not make it? Well, I think the answer to that question is very obvious. I think the reason that Noah made it is because Noah had an altar. Now, I know, I get it. I'm like you. I know Noah had some failures in his life. I understand that. I know what happened to him when he got off the ark. I get all of that. And by the way, there's not a one of us in this room or anybody listening today that don't have our faults, our failures, our foibles, or our flaws. We are a flawed people. We really are. We all do. But I'll tell you how we can make it in these days. We can build us an altar somewhere. We can be like old Noah. We can walk with God in these last days. We can have an altar, and we can't, like Noah, we can make it in these last days. But I'll tell you why I believe old Lot failed. Lot didn't have an altar in his life. Lot didn't have a place to communicate with God. Oh, he did. I get it. He did while he was with Uncle Abraham because everywhere Abraham went, Abraham built an altar. Abraham stayed in constant communication with God, and Lot did as well. I can imagine Oh, Uncle Abraham probably get the family together and say, come on now, nephew, Lot, we're going to have prayer. It's prayer time, and we're going to have prayer. We're going to worship God a little bit, but I think after they split, you know, they had fallen out. The cowboys of Abraham and the cowboys of Lot had a big falling out. Lot went one way. Abraham went the other way. You know the story. And after they split, we never read about Lot having another altar in his life. Let me tell you what I think happened to Lot. Let me tell you why I think Lot lost it all. I'll tell you why. Because he caved to the pressures and the problems and the persecutions of the society that he lived in. And the reason that he caved is because he didn't have a place to communicate with God. He did not have a place to pray. Jesus said, hey, we better pray or we are going to faint. Now, by the way, we need to have a constant attitude of prayer in our life every day. I mean, every day of our life, we ought to walk around in the atmosphere of prayer. Now, I don't mean you walk around on your knees with your eyes closed. You don't drive down the road with your eyes closed. (laughs) At least I think some people do. Uh, and i 'm one of them, but most you don 't you don't get your destination safely by closing your eyes i don 't think Jesus is telling all right, get on your knees, spend the whole day on your knees with your eyes closed, but I do think he 's telling us this: man we ought to maintain a constant state of communication with God. We ought to be in a constant attitude of prayer. Can I show you what I mean by that? Let me give you an Old Testament illustration of this. Back in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, you remember the story of Nehemiah's appeared before the king? The king said unto me, now this is Nehemiah talking. Now he's understood the city of Jerusalem is is in bad shape and he is going to the king to ask the king for what he needs. Look at verse 2. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Nehemiah said, man, I was afraid. You couldn't be in a sad countenance in the presence of these old fickle kings. I mean, he was the cupbearer. He always had to have a smile and be upbeat and positive. And when he walked in that day with a frown on his face because he'd heard about the devastation of his city, I mean, it could have been his head. And the king said, hey, what's wrong? Why are you so sad? And then look at this verse right here. And said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city... The place of my father's septic are waste. And the gates thereof are consumed with fire. He said, I've just got the news. My hometown is a wreck. I am sad. I am depressed. I am downtrodden because I understand the shape of my hometown where my daddy's buried at. And then the king says this. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? Hey, Nehemiah, what do you need? And look what Nehemiah did. So I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't think he knelt down right there before the king closed his eyes, got on his knees, but I think he breathed the prayer. Oh, God, help me. Well, we ought to always walk around in a constant state. We ought to keep our lives in such a condition with God that we don't have to spend 30 minutes trying to pray to get our sins confessed before we can get on praying ground with God. We ought to walk around in such an atmosphere of prayer because if we don't, living out these last days, if we don't pray, if we don't have an altar, we are in trouble. This story is about the problem of people. This story about is about the principles of prayer. Boy, I don't want to be a lot. I don't want to lose my testimony. I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my, uh, my reputation. Not that it's much anyway, but I don't want to lose any of that. Man, I've got to pray. If I'm going to make it in this, this evil society that I'm living in, I'm going to have to have me an altar. It's about the problem of people. It's about the principle of prayer. But now, here's where I really want to drive home uh, this, this, this truth. Number three. It's about the power of persistence. Really, this whole story is about this. The whole point of this story Jesus is making is a a call to us to persist in prayer. Don't give up when it comes to prayer. Look at verse number 1. He spake a parable unto them, this and that men ought always to pray and not give up, That's Tim Gammon's terminology. But he's saying, man, the, the, the point of this prayer is this. Don't give up when it comes to praying how many of us have prayed and prayed, and then we give up when we don't think we get the answer that we want. We, we give up. Now, we've already met a widow lady who's been done wrong. I don't know what's happened. I don't know what's been taken from her. We, she's got an adversary. She's got. By the way, we have an adversary, don't we? We have an adversary. That, that adversary of ours is constantly trying to take that from us, which does not belong to us. She has an adversary. She's been done wrong. But now we are introduced to the second person of this story, and that's this old crooked judge. The widow lady has been done wrong. And next we meet this, this mean old judge, this cold, calloused judge. So what happens is this. This widow lady, having been done wrong, realizes that the only way the wrong can be made right is to go through the, uh, through the court system to get the judge to help her, the wrong to right the wrong that she has suffered, so she goes to see the judge. In verse number two, there was in a a, ju- a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. So she goes to see this judge, but she finds this judge to be a man who doesn't fear God nor care anything about other people. He's cold, he's calculating, and he's calloused. And she goes to him, and she says, I've got a problem. Here's what happened. I can see her standing there probably with tears coursing down her cheeks. And she explains to him and just expresses her heart to this judge. But he don't care. He just blows her off. I can hear him say something like this, Ma'am, that's out of my jurisdiction. I can see him do something like this, look down at his watch. He's late for his golf game or cocktails down at the lounge. He completely just dismisses her. He has no time for her whatsoever. But the one thing this old judge doesn't understand is how determined this little widow lady is to get her wrong to be made right. He didn't understand she was a lady that was not going to take no for an answer. So every day when he shows up to work, there sits that little widow lady in the lobby. Every day in the courtroom when he's up pronouncing guilty or innocent or pronouncing judgment upon somebody. There in the back of that courtroom is that little old widow lady with tears running down her face. She's packed her lunch. She's come to stay a while. Maybe every day when he pulls out of the parking lot and heads home, she's standing out there with a sign on the street corner saying, a corner saying, avenge me of my adversary. And day after day after day, she won't leave this old judge alone. I mean, she's determined. She's got to have help. He's the one who can help her, and she will not let him alone. So finally, in a sheer act of desperation and frustration, he just gives up. He says, all right, you're wearing me out, woman. I mean, I can't go nowhere without seeing you. Every day I come to work, you pester me to death. Just because of your persistence, I'm going to take care of what you need me to take care of. Look in our text. Though I fear not God, the end of verse 4, nor regard man. Yet because this widow troubleth me, I'll avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Now, what's the point? Preacher, what's the point you're trying to make? Well, understand this. I'm, I'm coming in for a landing now. I'm circling. I'm coming in for the landing. You know, sometimes in the Bible, Jesus taught us about God by way of comparison. For instance, sometimes in the Bible, Jesus taught us about God being a heavenly father. And he told us that God was our father and we were his little children. Sometimes in the Bible, Jesus taught us God, about God by saying, you know, God is like a shepherd and we're like little sheep. He taught us by comparison what God was like. But then sometimes in the Bible, Jesus taught us what God was like, not by way of comparison, but by way of contrast. And what he's doing is he's saying, okay, let's contrast this mean, old, cold, callous, calculating judge with a loving, compassionate, caring, heavenly father. That's what he's doing here in this text. He's he's contrasting God, loving God, between this crooked judge. For instance, I could say this. This old judge was crooked. God is a righteous God. This old judge didn't love anybody. God loves everybody. This old judge was disturbed and bothered. God never gets disturbed or bothered. This old judge was unconcerned. God is very concerned. This old judge was only available certain hours of the day, but God's always available to his people. And by the way, we aren't like this widow either. I mean, she was a widow. We're the bride of Christ. She was a stranger to the judge. I'm no stranger To my heavenly father. She had nobody to represent her. I'm glad I've got an advocate up yonder at the right hand of the Father who represents me to my heavenly Father. And the point that the Lord is making is this. If this woman, by her persistence, got what she needed from a judge that didn't care anything about her, how much more can you and I get what we need from God, from a heavenly Father who does care for and love us more than we can imagine? We can confidently, we can constantly pray to our Heavenly Father and He will liberally and cheerfully provide for the needs of His people. Now here's what I know. There are some maybe listening or watching today and you prayed for a lost husband or a lost wife until you got discouraged and gave up. There are others who may be listening this morning and you have prayed for a wayward boy or a wayward girl until you've gotten discouraged and you've given up. There are some of you that have prayed for a marital situation that you're going through, and you have prayed and prayed and prayed until the point you got discouraged and you've given up. Maybe you're praying about a job. I know some of our people have lost their jobs during this COVID-19 crisis. And maybe you begged God, Oh, God, you know I've got to provide for my families, and you prayed until you've given up. Maybe you prayed about some other issue, some other need in your life, and you prayed, and you prayed, and you prayed, and then you got discouraged, and you gave up. Jesus is telling us this morning, whatever you do, don't give up. There is a God that will hear and answer your prayers. What I'm about to tell you this morning is a true story, so just hear me out. Take me a couple of minutes to tell it, but I want you to listen to this story. There was a young man, his name was Roger Sims. It was May the 7th of 1969, and he'd just gotten discharged from the Army back during the days of the Vietnam War. He'd just got home. He had a heavy bag, his Army suit on, and he was trying to hitchhike. He lived outside of Chicago, and he was trying to hitchhike on his way home. Well, cars all day long just kept blowing by him, blowing by him. And he had walked, walked with that heavy suitcase, and he couldn't wait to get home and take that uniform off for the very last time. He had walked, he was tired, and he, and he saw a car, another car coming down the highway, and he thought, man, this car is not going to stop. It was a sleek blit, black Cadillac. But he stuck his thumb up in the air, and his surprise, that car pulled right up the road, pulled off the road, and the door flew open. Old Roger Sims took off, opened up the back door, slung his suitcase in it, and crawled in the car, looked over at the man and said, my name is Roger Sims. The man said, my name is Hanover. I'm the head of Hanover Enterprises in Chicago, Illinois. He said, you going to Chicago? He asked Roger Sims that. He said, no, sir, not that far. The man said, you're in luck. I can take you to your exit. And they rode off together. Well, it was a long ride. It was a couple of hours' ride, and they talked and talked about military, the war, all that was going on, until about you know 30 miles or so from the exit. Roger Sims knew he was getting close to the exit. He was a good Christian, and he thought, you know, I really need to share the gospel with Mr. Hanover. I really need to, I really need to tell him about Jesus. But if I tell him, he may get angry and set me out. But he thought, I want to do it. And he said, Mr. Hanover... I want to tell you that I'm a Christian and, and uh, I, want, I would like to share with you the gospel of how you too can become a child of God. He knew evidently something was wrong with Mr. Hanover because a couple of t- times along the way he had cursed in the car. So Roger Sims told Mr. Hanover about Jesus. Well, when he got through sharing the gospel with him, the car pulled over. He just pulled the car over and Roger Sims thought, here it is, he's going to set me out, it's over. It's over. And to his surprise, Mr. Hanover pulled over the car, laid his head on the wheel, and began to weep. He was weeping. And when he finally got composure, he said to Roger Sims, he said, you know something? This is something that I've needed to do all my life. Help me. And right there in that car, Roger Sims led Hanover, Mr. Hanover to Jesus. They went on to their exit. He got out of the car, and just before he got out of the car, Mr. Hanover handed him a card and said, if you ever come to Chicago, look me up. Five years passed. Roger Sims, now a a little business owner himself, was married. He had a wife, a couple of kids, but he had to go to Chicago. And as he unpacked or packed his suitcase, he found that little white card five years before Mr. Hanover had given to him. And so he thought, while I'm there, I'm going to look him up, see how he's doing. So he got there, did his business, and finally he went to the offices of Hanover Enterprises, walked in, very plush office, said to the secretary, he said, "Uh, is Mr. Hanover, can I speak to him? She said, "Uh, that's not possible. But you can see Mrs. Hanover. He thought that's a little strange, but he said, okay, I'd like to see her then. And he walked in, after sitting there a little while, he walked in. Mrs. Hanover, from behind the desk, looked over at him and said, "Uh, I understand you knew my husband. He said, yes, ma'am. He, she said, tell me, how did you know him? He said, well, ma'am, I know the exact date, May the 7th. I'd been discharged from the Army, and, and he picked me up. And we had a long conversation. He just told me if I was ever here in Chicago, look him up. She said, tell me about that day. He started telling the chit-chat they'd had along the way, and then he thought, should I tell her that he got saved? Should I tell her that I led him to Christ? And finally he just said, ma'am, really what happened that day in the car is you're your husband pulled over to the side of the road, and he accepted Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. Well, when he said that, Mrs. Hanover broke out in, in, in tears. And when she gained, gained composure of herself, he said, Ma'am, I'm sorry, what's wrong? She said, What you don't understand is after my husband dropped you off that day, he was killed in a terrible car crash. Just after setting you out that day, And for five years I have been angry at God. For five years I have been bitter toward God because I prayed for years for my husband to be saved and I thought he died a lost man. Ladies and gentlemen, don't give up praying. Hey, just because the answer don't come in your time or in my time don't mean that we shouldn't persist in prayer. Because an old Puritan writer said this, and I'm done. He said, our prayers delights the ear of God. Our prayers melt the heart of God. And our prayers opens the hand of God to his people. You know, I don't know what you've been praying for. I I don't know if you've gotten discouraged and just, I'm done. But I promise you this. If this little lady got what she needed from somebody that didn't care for her because she wouldn't give up, how much more can you and me get what we need from our Heavenly Father who loves us so very much? Let's bow our heads for prayer.